everybody, and welcome to another episode of Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. Before we get started today, a couple of announcements. I've done a couple of interviews on other podcasts recently, and so I thought I would tell you about those in case you want to go listen to them. The first one is an interview on, about Byzantium on The Medieval Podcast with uh, Danielle Sibolsky. That is hosted on medievalists.net. I will include a link to the homepage in the description of this episode. You should go and check it out. Check out the rest of the podcast, too, if you're interested in medieval things. The second interview was the first episode of the Dumbarton Oaks Byzantine podcast. And this was, it's a conversation between myself and Jake Ransahoff, hosted by Anna Stavrakopoulou of Dumbarton Oaks. And it is on the Roman mind and the power of fiction. Uh, it's an idea I'm exploring about Byzantium. I will post a link to the front page of that podcast as well. Today's discussion is about something very much in the news recently, which is the conversion or reconversion of Hagia Sophia. Its legal status for the past 80-some years has been that of a museum, and it is now being turned back into a mosque, which is the status that it had during the Ottoman period. As I record this in Ohio in the summer of 2020, it seems that monuments generally are going through a kind of reckoning. So here in the United States, there's been a widespread and long-delayed public critique of Confederate monuments. And not just Confederate ones, even some monuments relating to the founding fathers of the United States and Christopher Columbus are coming in for scrutiny. And this is a case where it's pretty clear what these monuments stand for. And the question is whether you believe that those values should be celebrated and honored or not. Now, it is entirely possible to be ignorant of what exactly Confederate monuments stand for, and to, through that ignorance, to attribute some sort of idealized uh, set of values to them and not quite understand why so many people feel offended and threatened by them. But once you understand the history behind them and, and uh, the intentions of those who put them up, they're fairly indefensible from, from probably a majority consensus point of view. So this really is a case of being for or against a certain set of values that are represented by these monuments. What we're seeing in the case of Hagia Sophia is something quite different. Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion and debate and acrimony and protest and defensiveness and so forth surrounding the Turkish government's decision to reconvert Hagia Sophia back into a mosque. This is clearly not a case of people being for or against a particular monument and what it stands for. It's more like Hagia Sophia is uh, perceived by some as a zone of contestation over which values or religious beliefs or biological systems should be celebrated or that it does celebrate. It's, it's not a for or against a monument and what it fairly unambiguously stands for, but rather a contest over control over like literally what gets put at the top. You know, is it is it something secular? Is it really a church that's been placed under some disguise as a mosque or as a museum all, for all these centuries, or is it really a mosque? Now, this is a fairly complicated issue. I'm not going to take a position on it directly. It's very likely that listeners of this podcast fall into the camp of those who are, let's say, dissatisfied with the recent development and who see it with some sort of dismay. This is even if you haven't signed some online petition and the like. And for the sake of creating a dialectical dynamic going here, let me propose the following to you, that these kinds of changes, let's very, for the sake of shorthand, let's just call them symbolic changes. 
happen throughout history. And if you study the long duration of the Greek, Roman, Byzantine, European, Islamic traditions, you will find these sorts of things happening periodically. And scholarship on the whole tends to try to view them dispassionately. For example, when we see early Christians destroying ancient statues or temples, converting them into churches, uh, eliminating their artwork, and so forth, this is no longer discussed in kind of enlightenment terms as barbarism and, you know, vandalism, and these Christians are destroyers of ancient art and so forth. There, there was a time when th these actions were described that way, and there's still a, a sector of opinion that describes them that way, but that kind of approach is no longer very popular. Instead, the rubrics are always terms like transformation and negotiation and identity construction and community identity and so forth. And that these acts are constructive of new identities and, and new group narratives and so forth. So when Byzantine emperors scraped the original mosaics of Hagia Sophia off that had a cross and replaced them with mosaics that bore the Virgin Mary or other saints. We don't describe that as the destruction of heritage or vandalism or just an indifference to the art of the past. We see it as a process of creating a new type of visual orthodoxy in the aftermath of iconoclasm. Yes, it's a somewhat destructive act, but we focus on the more creative side of it, which raises the question of why then are we authorized to take a moral political stance today when we see something symbolically equivalent taking place? So from what standpoint do we in try to intervene in that process of cultural transformation that's taking place live before our eyes? So where do we draw the line between past acts of cultural transformation, if you will, that we describe dispassionately and try to understand, and those that are taking place today that we even feel entitled to object? Well, a number of answers can be given to that, but I'll focus on only one today because it leads directly to the conversation I'm about to have with my guest in this episode. Namely, what's different about our situation today, as opposed to most of history, is that cultural preservation is an explicit and entrenched and institutionalized value that most of us share. That is, that we want to preserve the vestiges of the past, we want to understand the past in all of its complexity, and we don't want to erase any of it in order to promote a modern agenda. And this is, after all, what scholarship is. This is what, this is what we do. We, we, in trying to understand the past dispassionately, we don't want to see it erased and damaged right before our eyes. I'm not saying that this has happened or that it is likely or going to happen in Hagia Sophia. It is, however, a very legitimate concern that scholars have and can reasonably act upon. Moreover, countries have made agreements and signed treaties and made declarations and created institutions for the purpose of preserving heritage in all of its diversity and to make it inclusive and available to mankind in certain exceptional cases in particular, and Hagia Sophia is certainly one of those. So this is something that even modern countries have understood to be binding morally or politically on themselves. And so the world and the world of scholarship has a vested interest in encouraging them to continue that preservation. My guest today is Bob Osterhout, professor of art history at the University of Pennsylvania. He is among the most distinguished, if, if not the very best historian of Byzantine architecture, and not just Byzantine architecture. I will draw your attention to one of his most recent books published last year uh, called Eastern Medieval Architecture, 
the building traditions of Byzantium and neighboring lands. Now, the discussion that we had for this episode of the podcast is based on an article that he wrote seven years ago called From Hagia Sophia to Hagia Sophia, Architecture and the Persistence of Memory. It is, it's only a few pages long. Uh, I will have a link to it again in the description of the podcast episode, and I strongly encourage you to read it. It is, I think, essential background reading for anybody who wants to understand what's going on and what the, all the, the complicated entwined strands of history and memory and claiming of Hagia Sophia by so many different sides, possibly including um, parties that you weren't aware had once had a say in what Hagia Sophia was to be. And I think he lays it all out beautifully, uh, as he does in this episode. And it'll get you thinking about how to frame and position the current debate that we are witnessing and, uh, and taking part in. So here then is my conversation with Bob Osterhout. Hello, Bob. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to talk to you. So it's late July 2020, and we're all watching in the news a heated conversation taking place about Hagia Sophia and its reconversion back to mosque status. And I thought that it would be good for our listeners to have insight into these events and their long history and what they mean for Hagia Sophia as a, as a monument and a, as a site of architectural and artistic brilliance. And I thought that your article on the architecture and persistence of memory in Hagia Sophia from, from Hagia Sophia to Hagia Sophia um, and, and uh, through all of its various phases was, was, was informed and sensitive and uh, uh, very well written and sober. And I think that that's what we need. Uh, so I thought you'd be an ideal guest at this time. So to start off, why don't you give us a brief history of the religious identities that Hagia Sophia has borne over the centuries? Just some of our listeners might not know the, the details of the big picture. Thank you. Yes, I, I suppose I could talk about that for the next three weeks, but I'll, <laughs> I'll be brief. You know, uh, Hagia Sophia was begun by uh, Justinian immediately after a famous uh, riot that attempted to uh, unseat him from the throne. So in many ways, Hagia Sophia could be viewed in its initial construction as a triumphalist monument for Justinian, proclaiming his power. But it is also a monument that was built to compete with the great monuments of ancient Rome. That is, to put Justinian in the same category as his great imperial predecessors in Rome, by building a monument that is unique in scale, unique in design, and very much uh, a symbol of his reign. What we see from the very beginning in the interpretations of Hagia Sophia is basically this is a building that because of its scale and unique design cries out for a symbolic interpretation. And basically everyone who has looked at the building and written about the building has uh, done just that. In the period of Justinian, for example, um, his court historian Procopius presents the Hagia Sophia in the language of the Temple of Solomon. That is, he sees this as proclamation that the Byzantines are the new chosen, chosen people and that Hagia Sophia is the new temple. And this kind of reading in religious terms is something that continues more or less throughout the Byzantine period. We see a variety of other readings at the same time Paul the Silentiary in the middle of the 6th century, writing for the second dedication of the church, presents Hagia Sophia as a microcosm of Justinian's empire. So, for example, in his enumeration of the marble decorations inside the building, mm. he tells us where they came from, and this becomes, in effect, a geography lesson of the dominion of Justinian. So right from the get-go, what we, we see Hagia Sophia calling out for a symbolic reading. After the time of Justinian, what we see is those Justinian-specific readings are perhaps not so much to the fore, but the idea that this is the new temple, the Byzantines are 
uh, the new chosen people, and that Hagia Sophia represents heaven on earth. That is, an experience that one could not have anywhere else. And this sort of legendary aspect of Hagia Sophia is something that continues, both for those who have seen it and for those who have never seen it but have only heard about it. So, for example, when the uh, Russian ambassadors come looking for a new religion and are brought to uh, Hagia Sophia, their response is this, we knew not whether we were in heaven or on earth, we only knew this is where, where God dwells among men. And it's on the basis of that that Kievan Rus converts to Orthodox Christianity. And it's interesting that Vladimir, who is in charge and responsible for the conversion, never lays his eyes on Hagia Sophia. It's simply on the word of his invite, uh, advisors that here is a building that represents something special, something uh, unique. Now, that interpretation is something that continues in the later Byzantine period, basically because Hagia Sophia remains unique in scale. Later Byzantine architecture is small, and although domed, it will be very different in terms of its organization. Most later Byzantine churches are small and rather complex in their design, rather than the huge monumental open interior yeah. that we know from Hagia Sophia. And so it remains for the Byzantines a unique monument throughout its uh, history, and one that figures prominently in later Byzantine history as well. One thing that I always have to point out when we talk about buildings like Hagia Sophia, or when we talk about Byzantine architecture in general, is that a church is never just a church. It provides a variety of other social services, it houses a variety of other activities, and for Hagia Sophia, there, this affects its meaning, particularly when we see it, uh, uh, the building as a setting for imperial ceremony. These are ceremonies, of course, that have religious overtones, but it's not something that we sort of imagine um, happening normally within a church. So in addition to representing the greater aspirations of the people who constructed the building, the building can serve a social function that to our minds, where we think in terms of separation of church and state and so on, serves a variety of functions that go far beyond religion. Now, when we get to the point of the Ottoman conquest of the city, uh, Hagia Sophia stands in a unique position on the landscape as the uh, Ottoman Turks take Constantinople in 1453. And Mehmet the Conqueror's first official act is the conversion of Hagia Sophia into a mosque. And this is not without uh, symbolic reading. It's Mehmet's triumphalist appropriation of the major Byzantine Christian monument of the city a building that is associated not so much with Mehmet's Byzantine presence, but with the glories of the Byzantine past, with Constantine and Justinian, and all the legends that it has accrued through the Byzantine period. So he's really appropriating those in a triumphalist kind of way as a symbol of his new regime. Now, unlike most other mosques, let's say almost all other mosques, Hagia Sophia is not renamed when it becomes right. a mosque. It keeps its old name. It becomes Hagia Sophia Jami. So that memory of its Byzantine identity is never erased. And in fact, when we look at what Mehmet did to the building as part of his conversion, well, the answer is very little. He left the building looking more or less as it had done in the Byzantine period. He installed the kind of furnishings that would be necessary for it to function as a mosque. A mihrab to redirect prayer to Mecca, a mimbar for the, um, the Friday sermons, a minaret for the call to prayer on the exterior, and so on. But he left most of the Byzantine decorations exposed and they were exposed until the 18th century. So we have um, um, early travelers recording 
the presence of the mosaics in the building as it continued to function as a mosque. Now, my reading of this is uh, that what was important in the period of uh, the early Ottoman Empire is that the building could be read both as a church and as a mosque. It was a church that was no more and a mosque that had superseded it. So the idea of the identity of the church as a mosque was something that was deemed worth preserving. And indeed, when we look at the conversion of other Byzantine churches into mosques, what we see is a very delicate intervention in the early centuries, and it's only as the as Islam becomes more conservative in the 18th century that we see developing a problem with interior decorations. Now, the standard idea is that the Ottomans come in, churches are converted to mosques, decorations are eliminated. And in fact, this is something that rarely happens except for the most obvious of the decorations. Some of the Byzantine churches maintain mosaics exposed into the 20th century. So is the idea uh, of, of preserving the traces of the Christian past part of the narrative of the, of the triumphalist narrative? Like that's why you want to keep it? You know, it's interesting when we look at the period of Mehmet, he is seeing himself as the legitimate successor to the Byzantine emperors. So he's not erasing history, he's building upon history. And he's tracing his lineage in any number of ways to see himself through a very strange Comnenian connection mm, to yeah, yeah. 12th century emperors through a renegade who flees to Konya and converts to Islam as being a legitimate successor to the Byzantine emperors. He styles himself as emperor so that he's really seeing himself in Byzantine terms. And even such things as, for example, when he visits Troy um, right. shortly after uh, his conquest, he makes a speech, at least according to his uh, historian, where he admires the heroes of ancient Troy, but he talks about what he has done as taking vengeance on behalf of the Asiatics against the Greeks. Yeah. That is, he sees himself as the legitimate successor of the Trojans. So he's putting himself into history and into legend in a variety of very interesting ways. This is exactly what the historians do with Hagia Sophia in the early Ottoman period. They develop an Ottoman legend and an Ottoman, uh, a uh, Islamic history for the building, so that it's not just a building that was converted by Mehmet the Conqueror, it's a building that has long been part of Islamic thought, long been part of the uh, narrative of the Ottoman people. Yes, I, I had a discussion um, with um, Elizabeth Key Foden about the, um, the Parthenon right. Mosque, and with a very similar narratives were developed there, because I mean, in order to convert a building and move it into a different symbolic logic, you have to both develop narratives in order to make sense of it and proclaim its new meaning. But there are also some architectural changes and, you know, changes in the depiction of the art and so forth that, that sometimes take place. So what, what happened in the 18th century that, so what was driving the more conservative Muslim approach? What, what was its logic? It seems to be the shifting of the caliphate to Istanbul and combining that uh. with the sultanate. And that brings into the fore um, where the sultan becomes the leader of the faithful as well as a political figure. And that seems to signal a shift and Islamic attitudes at that time. Right. Okay, so let's move to the 20th century. So what happens then? Well, what we see is as, let's say, tourism begins and there's greater contact with Europe, Western Europe, and the Ottoman Empire, we see tourists coming in and they don't know Istanbul so much, or they know it as an exotic Orientalist city, but they know it primarily from the reading of classics. That is, 
the educated traveler has read his classics, and for him or her, Constantinople represents the last great uh, ancient city. And so for them, what they're interested in is looking for the vestiges of the past. And it's vestiges of the past that, to their mind, stand in great contrast to the Ottoman present of the city. Sure. Now, in the 19th century and the waning days of the Ottoman Empire, the city's a little bit down in the heel. It's poor. There are poor neighborhoods. It's uh, hard to miss things like the, the dogs running in the streets and other um, evidence of the poverty of the city. But the idea of the Europeans is if we could just brush that away, if we could resurrect that glorious Byzantine past, then that would stand very much in contrast to what they saw as the decaying present of the city. So uh, Constantinople stood in sort of a strong symbolic presence to the European mind in the 19th century as representing a sort of brash alternative to the tyranny as they saw of the Ottoman Empire. And with this came, of course, a Christian reading. Constantinople is an ancient city, but it's also a Christian city. Europe in the 19th century is Christian. Their attitudes are dominated by Christianity. Their politics are dominated by Christianity. Now, of course, there are a variety of uh, you know, inter-Christian rivalries within Europe, but the real enemy is the infidel. And so their discussions of Constantinople or Istanbul are very much charged in a religious perspective, that is, Christians versus Muslims. And for this discussion, Hagia Sophia takes a really prominent position. Now, the politics of the 19th century, and particularly as we move into the early 20th century, are pretty difficult to follow, very difficult to understand. Yeah. You know, there are any number of changes that figure into the political situation where people are changing sides, right and left, political allegiances are changing with the various countries involved, and with the various conflicts of the 19th and early 20th century, the politics of this region is really hard to understand. For the outsider, it's much easier to see all of that encapsulated in one powerful symbol. And that symbol becomes Hagia Sophia. So the call for the defeat of the Ottoman Empire, as we see the formation of the modern Greek state, as we see the breakup um, of the Ottoman territories in the Balkans, as we see the build-up to the Balkan Wars of 1912 and 1913, World War One, uh, the breakup of the Ottoman Empire that follows subsequently, and so on, what we see very frequently in the European and American press is all of this is encapsulated in the symbol of Hagia Sophia, and in the call for Hagia Sophia to be reopened as a Christian church. And that's very much in the news throughout the late 19th century, and particularly in the early 20th century. As, for example, during the Balkan Wars, as Bulgaria is making significant progress in Thrace, they, uh, Western European powers see this as a prelude to the Christianization of Constantinople. Tsar Ferdinand of Bulgaria is alleged to have prepared his regalia for a triumphal entry into Constantinople, where he will be crowned as the emperor of a united Christian East. Inside the Church of Hagia Sophia, he will accept Orthodox Christianity as his religion and change his name to Tsar Simeon II. Uh, okay. Of course, this never comes to pass, but no. it, this is sort of something, if you look at the newspapers, British, American newspapers, in the early decades of the 20th century, this is something that is front, front page news. It has nothing to do with facts on the ground, the, um, you know, the political details of what is going on. It's all this sort of Christian aspiration 
for this new Christian East that is envisioned really across Europe, across England, and across the United States. Yeah, I've come across two specific instances of uh, plans to convert Hagia Sophia back to a church. There's one in the Crimean War, I think, where mm-hmm. a rich Greek merchant gave some money to the Tsar, and uh, the idea was that, you know, if the Ottoman Empire was defeated, finally, that you could put the cross back on top of the dome. And I think in the World War One, I've read that there was a Russian officer of Greek ethnic origin who was delegated the task of putting that cross up on top of Hagia Sophia should the war go that way. But uh, yeah, so th- this didn't happen, but obviously there's this very widespread and, and uh, rhetoric of, of doing that, and it was linked to aggressive actions against the Ottoman Empire, the expected dismemberment of it, and the fate of Constantinople was never really resolved in the eyes of the Western powers. It was under occupation for some time after World War One. There was some question, do we give it to the Greeks, or eh, maybe not give it to the Greeks, give the Greeks some territory in Asia Minor. And so is there a perception formed on the part of the, the founders of the modern Turkish state that the status of Hagia Sophia is like of prime importance to something that they really need to resolve in order to get their relations with the West in order? It is very much so. And this is something that we see debated from both sides. The, there are the Russian attempts at intervention, as you've talked about, And there's very much during the period of Western occupation in um, Istanbul, the discussion of the fate of Hagia Sophia. And it is a foregone conclusion for most that Hagia Sophia will be reconverted to a church. Even uh, apparently many of the Muslims believe this at the time. And so attendance at the mosque of Hagia Sophia is reduced in this period. But there's a great deal of suspicion against the Western powers, and rightly so. You have in England the formation of the Hagia Sophia Redemption Committee that is, uh, I mean, it sounds like a a bunch of naive crackpots, but major political figures, including several members of parliament, were behind this movement for um, reopening Hagia Sophia. And this is uh, reflected in a proposed union of churches between the uh, Episcopalian Church and the Greek Orthodox Church. And one of the outcomes of this is we have prayer services across the world in 1921 for the reopening of Hagia Sophia. In New York, the service was held in St. John the Divine on, I think it's January 2nd or 3rd, uh, 1921, for the reopening of Hagia Sophia. There were prelates representing seven different branches of the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church praying in seven different languages for the reopening of uh, Hagia Sophia. Now, this sounds like kind of a crazy idea, but this was so popular that the church, and this is the biggest church in New York, was filled to capacity. They had to turn people away at the door because it was so popular. At the same time this was happening, in, in New York, uh, similar services were happening in Washington, D.C., in Philadelphia, in Detroit, in Chicago, in all major American cities. So this is something that was very, very much on the minds of uh, Westerners as the fate of, of uh, Istanbul is being debated following the defeat of the Ottoman Empire in World War I. And from a Byzantine standpoint, that's a bit ironic because attempts at union between the Orthodox Church and the Western Church, the Catholic Church at the time, didn't go well. And in fact, for a few months before the fall of the city to the Ottomans, there had been, so the Emperor Constantine XI Paleologus had tried to, you know, either not so much enforce union as symbolically perform it. And they had had a joint liturgy, and this had caused uh, the anti-unionist Orthodox subjects of his to boycott Hagia Sophia. The patriarch had fled, and they were probably the majority. And this is one of these sad moments where when the city falls, you know, there's no patriarch, and Hagia Sophia is basically being boycotted. It's, uh, you know, it's a fascinating history, but 
when we see this sort of universal call for the reopening of Hagia Sophia as a Christian church, it hits a stumbling block. Well, a couple of stumbling blocks, but one of them is dissension within the Christian community. The Pope decides that, well, when the city was founded, it was a Catholic city, and when Hagia Sophia fell to the Ottomans, it was through the Unionist negotiations, it was a Catholic shrine. Therefore, if it's converted to Christian usage, it should be Catholic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there are the, you know, the Greek Orthodox uh, argument, there's the Russian argument that it should be a Russian church, and then there is the American Protestant argument that if we're thinking about modernism, what represents modernism better than Protestantism? So there is this great dissension about if it's going to be a church, who's going to be in charge of it as a church? At the same time, there are uh, Muslims in Istanbul who are saying any attempt to convert this building to a church will end with us dynamiting the building. We will blow it up rather than see it converted to Christian usage. So the, the struggle really goes on and on and on until we get to the Treaty of Lausanne in 1923. And with the Treaty of Lausanne, the Turkish control of Istanbul is recognized, and this whole debate over the conversion of Hagia Sophia really comes to a sudden end. And then, I think, what we see is as Ataturk strengthens his control as we see the formation of the modern Turkish Republic, Ataturk very much wants to see the modern Turkish Republic as part of the Western world. He wants it to be a modern state, very much as we see in even, for example, the um, Soviet Union becoming a modern state, that is, severing those direct links with the past to make it uh, a nation that is modern and is secular. So when the day that Ataturk is proclaimed Ataturk, he's actually named Mustafa Kemal, Ataturk means father of the Turks, the day that he is proclaimed the father of the Turks is the day that Hagia Sophia is converted into a museum. And it's a move that fits very well with our understanding of Ataturk's idea for Turkey to be a secular nation. That is, this could be like Mehmet the Conqueror uh, converting the building to a mosque, a grand symbolic gesture. Convert the building to a museum, make it accessible to all people, and that stands as a symbol of his new secular republic. I wonder sometimes, looking at this chain of events and the calls, unified calls by the Westerners for the conversion of the building to a church, if um, Ataturk's uh, decision to open Hagia Sophia as a museum is a little bit of a compromise with Western powers, making the building a Western symbolic monument. I mean, what could be more symbolic than a museum? I mean, museums are repositories of our history. And making the museum, making the building a museum fits with his vision, but it also seems to uh, perhaps placate the unified desire of the West for the Christianization of the monument. Right. So, I mean, given the intense discussion about its identity in, in the late 19th century and early 20th, it would seem that his designation of it as a mosque Sorry, I'm getting all these confused. As a, as a museum is probably the most powerful symbolic gesture that he can make toward the West about what he intends Turkey to be. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And if you look at what happens, for example, in Ankara, you know, Ankara is redesigned to be a Western city. The only mosque, as I understand it, constructed during his early years is the Mosque of the National Assembly in Ankara, which is a modern building. It doesn't look like any other mosque. It proclaims its modernity in architectural terms. So there is this real attempt 
to sever the links, the immediate links with the Ottoman past, to form a new country that fits within a westernized perspective. So from an architectural and art historical standpoint, what did the conversion to a museum entail to the building? So what, what decisions were made about what to keep, what to showcase, or so on? Well, the decision was basically, you keep everything. A museum is a repository of our history. So it preserves its long and complicated and often messy history through um, you know, the juxtaposition of elements that are 6th century Byzantine, 10th, 11th, 12th century Byzantine, early Ottoman, later Ottoman, and so on. I mean, we have, for example, uh, the baptistry of Hagia Sophia became an imperial mausoleum. When you go there to visit the baptistry these days, you see the baptismal font sitting in the vestibule of the baptistry. But inside the baptistry are the cenotaphs of the sultans. Uh, so uh, we see the building as this sort of, well, almost a palimpsest of the history, the complicated history of Constantinople, Istanbul, the Byzantine Empire, the Ottoman Empire. And for that, it allows, I think, multiple readings for multiple audiences. And I think as a museum, this is really important that somebody who was a devout Muslim can come in and look at the building and say, aha, we really beat them, 1453, we drove them out, uh, we took this building, yada, yada, yada. Or a devout Christian can come in, see the mosaic of the Theotokos, the Virgin Mary in the apse, see the other Christian decoration that's been exposed in the 20th century and say, this used to be the heart of our empire, this used to be the heart of our religion. For Christians, it became a sort of wailing wall, you know, that it, a symbol of legacy that has been lost. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, I do appreciate that about the Hagia Sophia Museum. In contrast to, say, what's happened in Greece with, say, the Parthenon, and many other classical sites where their subsequent history is either was either erased in the 19th century or relegated to a different museum, like split between periods, yeah, right? Yeah. So you find the classical Parthenon in the Acropolis Museum, but the Christian Parthenon is relegated up the street to the Byzantine and Christian Museum. This is the same monuments, it's just split into different periods. Yeah, exactly. And this is uh, one of the real problems in discussions of historic preservation today. So, for example, when Thessaloniki became part of modern Greece, what we saw there was, uh, well, most of the churches of Thessaloniki had been converted to mosques. The Church of the Holy Apostles, the Church of St. Catherine, uh, Church of Hagia Sophia, all of these had been converted to mosques. And what we see happening in Thessaloniki in particularly the 1920s is the erasure of the Ottoman past. Now, if you go to um, any of these churches today, you don't see any evidence that these buildings spent several centuries functioning as mosques. That's right. Yeah. That's been completely washed away. That is, the, the powers that be have picked what they see as the ideal historical period to be represented. I mean, this is the same thing that happens at the Parthenon. We see the privileging of the classical period. That's what's represented there. It becomes a pastiche of the Parthenon, becomes a pastiche of the classical period that exists in a state that it perhaps never existed in in right. antiquity, but that's what's represented there. We see the same in, let's say, Mussolini's interventions in the Roman Forum. You know, never mind that there was a vibrant Renaissance era neighborhood sitting on top of the Roman right. Forum that's been removed completely. So there, there's always this desire, and I think even today, it's so much easier to think about restoring a building to an ideal period in its history, usually meaning the period of its inception. So for example, working in historic preservation at the Pantocrator Monastery, now the Zeyrek Jami, in Istanbul, a building that has a very complex and significant history for both the Byzantine period and the Ottoman period, 
and it's had uh, a great deal of damage and intervention through its later um, centuries. And um, as we began working on the renovation of the building, our first task was um, securing the roof, which was leaking, damaging much of the interior. We needed to stabilize the vaulting of the roof. We needed to take off later concrete uh, accretions and so on. But to stabilize the roof, then that brings us to issues of what is the outer aspect of the building supposed to look like? A roof is anchored by cornices at the top of the walls, where the roof joins the walls. Well, the cornices, as we saw them, uh, as we surveyed the building, were a combination of Byzantine, Ottoman, and early Republican forms. So which should we choose as we stabilize the building? Should we do something that is completely neutral and doesn't reflect any of those periods? Should we in areas where large areas of the Byzantine cornices survive, should we um, restore them in their Byzantine form, uh, and so on. I mean, these were really tricky decisions, but they're decisions where we're thinking in terms of larger ideas about a uh, how a building can represent its history, not to put it to an ideal perspective. It would have been much easier for us to restore the building to its original Byzantine form. And, you know, as a specialist in Byzantine architecture, that was certainly something I was interested in. But for the respect of the later history of the building, which is quite significant in the Ottoman period, how do we blend those elements together, particularly in a building that continues to function as a mosque? And for the local congregation there, they saw this as an either-or proposition. That is, either the building is a historical monument or it is a functioning mosque. They didn't see um, a happy medium between those two choices. We argued all the way through our work on the building that it was possible for a building to be both a historical monument where it displays its rich, often contradictory history in a way that a viewer can understand it without making it impossible to function as, uh, as a mosque. And this was a discussion that went on and on and on. We had any number of um, misinformed Byzantine historians come look at the site and then announce to the Turkish press this would make a wonderful museum. And we would just mm. have to backtrack on that and say, no, 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 we can't say this. We don't own the building. You know, the uh, director of the Pious Foundations owns the building, not us. Our work is solely concerned with the building as a historical monument. We have no decision to make about the ultimate function of the museum. But, when, you know, somebody goes in the press and says, this would make a wonderful museum, it set our negotiations back by months, if not years. Ultimately... So, so what happened? Yeah, what happened in the end? Well, ultimately, the decision was taken out of our hands. In uh, 2004, the NATO meeting was held in Istanbul. George W. Bush decided to attend this meeting. There were massive protests... Um, now, we, were, we have been restoring this building primarily with money that came from private donors, private benefactors in the United States. So it's basically half a million dollars of American money that we have poured into the restoration of this building. And we began to see anti-American posters going up on the doors of the mosques, in addition to anti-Bush posters. Everyone was wearing Bushes, uh, wearing anti-Bush buttons that say, Gelme Bush, which means Bush don't come. And there were riots. There were bombings in the neighborhood. This is also the year of the Abu Ghraib um, oh. disaster. And so that kind of figured into this growing anti-American sentiment. When the NATO meeting happened, basically we had to close down our work for uh, about two weeks because we couldn't get through 
the police barricades, the protesters, and so on, to actually get to the building. And when we got to the building, we were met with hostility by the locals. And we were not particularly surprised when shortly after the NATO meeting, our permit was revoked, keys were taken away, and the project was given to the municipality. And all concern about preserving the building as a historic monument went out the window. If you visit the Zarek Jami today, you will see very, very little indication in the interior that the building was ever a Byzantine church. Most evidence of the Byzantine period has been simply plastered over and painted so that it looks like a nice spanking clean mosque on the interior. That's something that, that fate is something that's not unique to Zarek Jami. If you think about Kuchukaya Sophia, the church of Sergius Symbacus, and the very heavy-handed restoration mm -hmm. that was done there without any documentation, then um, this is something I worry about with Hagia Sophia. The Turks love heavy-handed restorations that make the building look brand spanking new, inside clean with brand new carpets and so on. And I worry that this is the fate of Hagia Sophia, that it is going to become made new again. Right. Let's talk a little bit about that background and as, as we're getting closer to the present. But I also very much appreciate your insight into the practical aspects of the, the decisions that have to be made in restoration because it, it actually is a pretty deep philosophical question that has to do with identity. So a lot of people believe that buildings have this fixed identity that's either some original ideal type or the way they're using it now or the way that corresponds to their politics. Whereas you, you, you write that buildings are forever in the process of becoming and they, they accumulate lots of identities and meanings over time. And, and you display a sensitivity toward preserving them all if, you know, as much as possible. And so that's it's a different it's a different approach it's based on a different ontology, really. Um, so but let's get closer to the present. So what are the forces that have been pushing toward the conversion of museums to mosques in modern Turkey? OK, let, before I answer that, I just want to point out uh, part of that are your previous comments is the uh, that UNESCO has defined as part of their policy toward the preservation of history, the tangible and intangible aspects of cultural history. And I like very much their definition of this. Well, what is an intangible aspect of history? If you look at a building like Hagia Sophia, it is a building that has multiple messages, multiple narratives, multiple histories, multiple legends. Just about anyone you ask will give you a different narrative for the building. Even you and I, as Byzantine specialists, might give very different meanings. Sure. Um, a Russian would give a very different reading. A Greek would give a very different reading. They would see different aspects of the historical, of the history of the building, as more important than others. And with um, as we define the intangible aspects of cultural heritage, um, what this means is that in a building like Hagia Sophia we have to allow all of those various readings and various histories um, that speak to the very different audiences of the building to be maintained. There's always a danger if we succumb to political or religious jingoism to select a dominant narrative. You know, this is what happened at the Parthenon. This is what happened in the monuments of Thessaloniki. We pick a dominant narrative we erase the other aspects of the history that is visible there. And with a building like Hagia Sophia, if we see one narrative dominate, then all that rich and complex history of the building may be silenced. And for this reason, I like if the building is not preserved as a museum, preserving it in such a way that those rich and varied meanings of the building can vibrate together. That is, they can exist simultaneously. 
Right. Okay. So, what's driving the? What's no? You, I, I agree. I mean, you, you, you're you're entirely right. And uh, and sometimes even the alleged original meaning isn't like if you look into the details, it's not what people think it is. Like, like even you take the Parthenon, it's just it's always talked about as something to do with the democracy, but it seems to be like a, some kind of victory monument that the Athenians set up to proclaim how their goddess helps them in war or something like that. It's an it's an imperialist victory monument. Yeah, I mean, it's like that's not, the democracy is on the other hill, you know, where the where the people assemble. You can go see the democracy there. It's they, not, they, right. They didn't they didn't build yeah. great monuments to proclaim it. Yeah. Um, okay. So okay. how did we how did we get to the to the current moment? A lot of it has to do with I mean we're in a, a very precarious position in American politics right now, and um, what we see, for example, political leaders do when they are in trouble is they throw red meat to their base and in turkey erdogan is in trouble economically and there are a lot of political issues within the country that are barely kept under wraps in this day and age but there is a severe economic problem developing in turkey that's going to you know affect the next several decades rather than pay attention to that in a very Trumpian kind of way, Erdogan is throwing red meat to his base. And his base are the conservative Muslims of the country. And these are, as with the Trump base, tend to be poorly educated, whose worldview is dominated by religion. So in the United States, for example, the litmus test of the true believer is, do you support abortion? In Turkey, the litmus test of the true believer is, should Hagia Sophia be reopened as a mosque? And through the last decade, there have been various preludes to this in the most blatant and uh, kinds of ways where any Byzantine monument that was dedicated to Hagia Sophia is being reopened as a mosque. Now, Hagia Sophia in uh, Nicaea, or Iznik, was the site of a major church council in the, in the 8th century. It's a building that has a long, complex history from the Byzantine period. Its conversion uh, into its present state was undertaken by the great Ottoman architect Sinan, and so on. Well, they found a loophole in the legislation that said it never had been officially converted into a museum, Therefore, it could be reopened as a mosque. And so in uh, 2011, uh, Hagia Sophia in Iznik was reopened as a mosque. Now, there was no reason for this. There are mosques galore in Iznik. There was no one clamoring for the reopening of this building, which stood in ruins, to be a mosque. It was purely a political move and was understood at the times as being a political move where you know, one of the ministers says something like five down and oh. three to go or something like that. And the conversion of one Hagia Sophia was seen as the prelude to the conversion of other Hagia Sophias. So, um, so since then, Hagia Sophia in Trabzon or Trebizond, which was major, major monument of the 13th century with incredible frescoes that were lovingly restored by a team from Edinburgh in the late 40s, uh, early 50s, and was the major tourist monument for the city of Trabzon. It didn't sit in the city, but was at some distance from the heart of the city. So there wasn't really a neighborhood around it that needed this building to be a mosque. And yet, because its name was Hagia Sophia, it was converted to a mosque. Uh, And a sort of tent was constructed on the inside to cover the frescoes so that the uh, the faithful would not be offended by them. The inlaid marble floors of the building were covered with carpets. So now you have a building that is kind of an eyesore. It doesn't really serve the Muslim community uh, in a proper way. Now they're doing re-landscaping around the building that is really threatening to damage or destroy a historic area that's never been properly excavated. So 
it stands as sort of a, you know, a, well, let's say a bad example of what can be done in the name of religion. This was a purely political decision. The people of Trebizond, or Trebizond did not want this conversion, and they got it anyway. Similarly, the Church of Hagia Sophia in Visi, in uh, Visa, mm-hmm. in Western Thrace. In fact, we don't know if it was originally dedicated to Hagia Sophia. That's the name that became associated with it in the Ottoman period. Still, it got a major overhaul. You go inside the building today, it's a brand spanking new mosque inside the building. This is a major building from the Byzantine transitional period from probably the early 9th century. So it stands as a critical point in Byzantine history, but it's very hard to read that Byzantine history in the monument today. And Enes, Byzantine Enos, right at the mouth of the uh, Evros or Maritza River, there is a elegant 12th century church, which was one of my first projects as a graduate student, that um, is known as the Fatih Jami. But if you look at the uh, sources, we don't have a Byzantine source that gives us a name for it. But through the Ottoman period, the Greeks call it the Church of Constantine and Helena, and the Muslims call it Hagia Sophia. It's converted to a mosque. It collapses in the 1950s. And now, simply because the Ottoman name is Hagia Sophia, it is being rebuilt as a mosque without the, the proper sort of intervention and documentation that one would wish for. Yeah, so it sounds like they're, they're targeted because of their name and its symbolic association. It's almost like mosque by association. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, you call it Hagia Sophia, it has to be a mosque. Yeah, that's a big target. So precisely because these decisions are political and because politics changes all the time and there's always hope, you know, if you don't like a certain direction they're going in that next year, next decade, they'll go in a different direction. What are the kinds of changes to the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople that would best preserve all of the history of the monument such that if it were to return to being a museum, it would do so with the minimal amount of damage? That is what... what well, I, I suppose the, the, the first um, thing on the agenda would have to be regime change. Um, I'm not sure I should be saying that out loud. No, but, that's not our, you know, that's not our <laughs> remit, but... Yeah, um, I'd like to see this is a building that its identity goes far beyond the religious identity that it has been given. And in fact, you know, the discussion over the functioning of the building in the last years has been Christian versus Muslim church versus mosque. The fact that this is a historical monument that speaks in very different ways that go far beyond our current very narrow religious definition of the building uh, is something that's really been overlooked in the recent discussion. And I think thinking about the building as a historical monument, what it tells us about regional, national uh, identity, what it tells us about the Byzantine period, what it tells us about the Ottoman period. If there's a way to preserve all that, I say, let's do that. Let's make the building accessible so that it is both welcoming and to all visitors in a way that does not conflict with its present function, you know, whether that is as a mosque or um, as a museum. I'm a little alienated from the the heated sort of Christian versus Muslim framework in which the current events are being discussed sometimes. And in part, that's because in the past few years, I've been reading, I've read a number of books on Ataturk and on Mm -hmm. the history of modern Turkey and its politics. And so I've kind of more intuitively sensitized to the internal dynamics of these kinds of things that, you know, I I think what's going on is is an internal Turkish debate over what Turkey is and, you know, is it this sort of secular Ataturk uh, regime or is it a more kind of overtly Islamic or and so forth. But but people who look at this from the outside, sometimes they, they don't see those kinds of distinctions. They don't look like there are lots of videos and interviews of, by Turks, like secular European Turks who are afraid that this is just eroding 
secular society and even the legal regime in Turkey, they're not concerned about whether this is a Christian Muslim thing. Bob, this is a wonderful conversation, and I think that everybody who's interested in what's going on right now should, should listen to this, and I will bill it as such. I think this is the essential background to understanding the complexity of this situation. Thank you for agreeing to do this. Any, any last words? I mean, we're almost out of time, but... I think I, you know, I could go on and on, but I think I've said enough. It's uh, when my career has been based on the study of Byzantine architecture, and when I see uh, the center of the world disappearing monument by monument, it really pains me. And to see this as, you know, I've, I'm not particularly religious, but to see these monuments as cultural monuments that are aspects of a rich universal history that need to be maintained as such. I have very strong belief in the importance of the study of the past. And these monuments stand as signals within that, and I hope can be maintained in that way. Yeah, and, and in your work, you've done more than anybody else to educate everybody about that. Uh, just for our listeners who are not Byzantinists, Bob is the leading historian of Byzantine architecture, has written very, very many books, uh, very accessible, so I recommend that you go look at them if you're interested in architecture. You know, Bob, I get questions from the audience about architecture. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, but I, I know someone who does. Okay, uh, so read the book. <laughs> right. So thank you again, Bob, and take care. Okay, thanks.